Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm so glad to welcome Ellen Bruno as my guest. Ellen is an extension economist at UC Berkeley. She works on economic questions at the intersection of agriculture and the environment and evaluates the potential and the effectiveness of different policies for managing water resources. If you recall Scott Hamilton's interview by episode 6 of this season 4, you're fully aware of how a water market can turn bad. Yet, even Scott wasn't blaming the market itself for selling down the Murray River, but rather the way it was set up and managed. So I was asking myself, can a water market be any good for water management? And if yes, how, to which extent and why? The good news for you is that much better brains than mine have been investigating that question and I got to meet one of them with Ellen. So without further spoiling you the content of Ellen's research she'll share in a minute, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, please do all the listeners of this podcast and me a favor, share the word and recommend it to two of your friends or colleagues. That's how we grow this water community and how I get to convince brilliant minds to share their insights with all of us. So please do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We have a fascinating topic today, which is a follow-up from something we've been discussing on the podcast in the past. But right before, you know, I have some traditions here and I'd like to open with a postcard. And you're sending today a postcard from a place I don't know at all. What can you tell me about Berkeley, which I wouldn't know by now? Well, yeah, UC Berkeley... It is California's land-grant university. I don't know if you know that. As part of the mission of the university, in addition to teaching and research, there's also a public service component, which is relevant to the job that I'm in as an extension economist. I focus on public outreach. So in this role at UC Berkeley, I do economics research and I also conduct extension public outreach, where I try to connect the research that's happening at the university that I'm doing to stakeholders, particularly in California, that could potentially benefit from the research. And that's one of the cool things about being at a land-grant university like UC Berkeley. What kind of stakeholder can that be? Uh, it depends on what sort of research you're doing. I personally focus on water resource economics. And so all of the stakeholders that I think about and, and work for are water-related stakeholders. So I think primarily of like managers of water utilities or irrigation districts. It could be farmers as well who are using water directly. But since I work on sort of policy questions, I think of my stakeholders more so as those who might write policy, implement policy. So the water managers at the local level or even state level policymakers as well. So what's the aim to that extent? Is it to share the best practices of whatever you've developed in the research and to then translate it into facts and actual policies or actions or whatever? 
Yeah, it's to benefit Californians, right? We don't want the research that's happening at the university to just die there or only stay among conversations among other academics. We want to take the research that's happening at the university and disseminate it and translate those scientific discoveries into practical knowledge. And then there's this other component too, where we want to be conducting research that is relevant, right? So we want to learn from stakeholders what are the needs of the people and so that we can be doing relevant research as well. Regarding your personal path, how did you arrive to that position you're in today? What brought you to that special field, I would say, at the intersection of the water world, the agricultural world, and the economy? Well, growing up, actually, my mom worked as a manager of a water utility, and so I was always interested in water issues. And then in college, I was studying economics and took one class on the economics of ocean resources. And I just thought it was so cool, the sort of tragedy of the commons in our fisheries and how we could use, you know, really some of the environmental problems that we see in the world and including in water issues are oftentimes where the market is failing, but there can be corrections to the market where we can re-incentivize so that market forces can work in favor of the environment. And so I just thought this was so cool in school. And, you know, since agriculture is one of the biggest users, is the biggest user of water, it's a natural fit if you're interested in water issues to think about ag in that sense. It's pretty interesting that you mentioned the market failing there because I found that to be kind of a red threat in the various publications I've read from you because you're addressing how to correct those market failures to identify them and then to correct them. So I guess that makes for a smooth transition towards our deep dive today, which would be about water markets. And water markets is a topic the last time we've touched on it on that microphone. It was with Scott Hamilton and we were covering how markets and water markets somehow failed Australia and how they went to an extreme which had some bad consequences on the Murray-Darling River Basin. And when I was reading your papers, you actually cite that case as one example of something which didn't go exactly right. Nevertheless, your full papers, I mean, your series of three papers on the topic show that it's not the only outcome. So I'd like to investigate how water markets can be beneficial so that we have the two sides of the story and that maybe we identify what can be done differently to have a better outcome than what we've seen in Australia. And to that extent, my first very simple question is, well, simple is maybe not the right definition, but why do you think that markets can be beneficial when we have on the other end of the scope some bad examples? Oftentimes when I'm thinking about water markets and water trading, which I'll use interchangeably, it's in context where we need to restrict the amount of water use you know, that's being used relative to the status quo. Right. And so if we have to restrict water use, that's tough on the water users. And so when we think about water trading, it's to sort of make that transition to a restricted environment easier. So we have to cut back. And how can we do that in the least painful way possible? And that's by taking this scarce resource and using it in the most efficient way amongst those who are using it. And by facilitating trade, by having a market, you know, in theory, we can get to this allocation of a scarce resource 
that maximizes the benefits to society. That's what the market will do for us in theory. But of course, we know, especially environmental economists know, markets don't work perfectly. They rarely, rarely if ever do, right? And so when thinking about, okay, there are some clear positives to implementing a market, there can be these voluntary trades that will benefit both parties involved. But there are several ways that, you know, it could go wrong, as we've seen in Australia and in other environmental markets. There are several different ways they can sort of break down. And in the paper you're referring to, I think particularly about market power, which is just one element that is one form of market imperfection. And so that's whenever a market participant or a group of market participants can influence the market price. They have enough sort of control in the market that they can influence the price. And, you know, all these things that economists love about markets really come out when a market is super competitive and you have, it drives down the price. And when you lose some of that competitiveness and somebody has the ability to influence the price, you have worse outcomes. But in many cases, they can still be better than the alternative where you don't have any trade. And so it's all really relative to what baseline we're considering. I'm going to give just from the top of my head the number which stood in your research, which I'm still impressed with. What you were showing is that compared to the status quo, putting a market would be 36% better when it comes to water uses. And with regards to this market power you just mentioned, you were studying, if I'm right, two different types of market power. The first where the buyers have the power, the second where the sellers have the power. And in both cases, I think the reduction of the efficiency was about 11%. So that means that even in that scenario, you're still better than the status quo. So even in a rigged market, somehow rigged, you're in a better situation than today. So it's a win-win. Right. Right. You know, of course, if we're implementing these markets, we want to get them to work as well as possible. We want them to be as competitive as possible. But even in the presence of market power, we're still finding that there are benefits from allowing the trade because when you have a curtailment like the one we study in this paper, it's hard to really nail that to sort of get that allocation right so that, you know, it's the best possible use of the resource. Two of your papers focus on Coachella, right? So on the Coachella Valley Basin, which I'm sorry, it's a French part of you, but to me, Coachella is, you know, the famous music it's festival. It's a music festival, right? <laughs> What's special about Coachella, which made you take that one as a study example? Sure. Well, there's sort of two elements to it in picking this area. One is just, it was important for me to pick a study area in California because California has some new groundwater policy underway. And so by having a study region in California, it was making the research more policy relevant in terms of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act that the state passed at the end of 2014, requiring basins throughout the state to reach groundwater sustainability. But focusing on the Coachella Valley in particular within California was largely due to data reasons. So for the most part in California, in many places, groundwater isn't metered, and so it isn't monitored in how much is being extracted. And then on top of that, it's rarely priced. So groundwater pumpers will pay whatever it costs to extract the groundwater from below, like those electricity costs from their pump, but it's not like the irrigation district is charging an explicit price 
pour that water on top of those pumping costs. And so that makes it really hard. If you're interested in studying a market, for example, and you want to know what the demand curve for groundwater looks like, it's very hard to look at any data and try to get a sense of what does that demand curve look like when prices don't even exist. How can you sketch out a relationship between quantity and price? And in Coachella, they happen to have a price in place because they do some groundwater, a special groundwater program where they charge prices to the irrigators in the region. And so I was able to work with that irrigation district to look at their data on prices and quantity and try to use that to tease out a relationship about the groundwater demand curve. How does that work in practice? How do they measure the water which is pumped from the groundwater and how do they charge it? Yeah, so they have meters on all the wells in Coachella, which is, makes them somewhat different from the majority of groundwater in California. And they charge a, a flat volumetric fee for the groundwater that's pumped. So on average in our sample set, it's about $64 per acre foot. And so that's a flat per acre foot fee, regardless of how much you pump and you know the district bills accordingly. What I found interesting that shim is the way that that money is used. Can you maybe explain us what this money which they charge is used for? Yeah, in this region, they do some artificial groundwater replenishment because they've been really proactive in managing their groundwater. So they, you know, have these fees and, and then use those revenues in order to carry out this artificial replenishment to try to keep the storage levels high in their aquifer. So that means that somehow that loop is closed. The uses of groundwater serve as a way to replenish the groundwater. So it's kind of a reuse loop with the nature in between, but, but still a reuse loop. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that much about, you know, how when they implemented this price, sort of how it was perceived amongst the farmers who are being charged. But I would imagine that that sort of argument is helpful. It's like, we're paying into this, but we're going to get out the benefits as well. We're going to uh, use the money to recharge the aquifer and, and close the loop amongst those who are paying into the program. I actually need you to make a muggle stop just because for the next steps of our discussion, there's a concept which I need you to define, which is price elasticity. Honestly, I read your first paper and I thought, you know, I'm going to understand it. And then I thought, okay, that was a stupid move. Let's go back to Wikipedia, have a look at what price elasticity means. I went into that, I read it, and then I reread your paper. And all of a sudden, I understood it. So let's just set the scene for everyone. Can you define price elasticity? Sure, absolutely. So in my paper, I'm looking specifically at the price elasticity of demand for water. We have an intuition, all of us, about demand curves where you know that, you know, if the price goes up, the amount you'll demand of any good goes down. And so it's the same idea that the, the price elasticity is a parameter that characterizes this relationship. It tells us how sensitive we are to a change in price. So, for example, if the price were to increase by 10%, how much consumption would go down in percentage terms? And so... This is important when we're thinking about sustainability policies for water. If, for example, suppose a regulator wants to encourage a certain amount of conservation of water and they want a set of price in order to do that, how high of a price would they need to set in order to incentivize a certain reduction in pumping? If you don't know anything about this relationship, it would be really hard to design that kind of policy. 
What's interesting is that I've been discussing water tariffs and water price on that microphone with many guests in the past. And I have to admit, we've all said a lot of stupid stuff because I really thought, you know, it was that direct. You put your prices 20% higher and people would reduce their consumption by at least 20%, which means it would be an elasticity of one, but still, it would be quite okay-ish with the preconception I had. And your results are totally different. What did you find? Yeah, so we actually found that the groundwater pumpers in the Coachella Valley were very inelastic. So our price elasticity was estimated at negative 0.2, meaning if the price goes up by 10%, we would expect groundwater extraction to decrease by only 2%. So much less than that one-to-one ratio that you just suggested. And, And we think this is kind of intuitive, actually, because water is a required input to production, right? We think about farmers that have invested in a crop that they're growing and you need that water and you're not going to just one month be like, ah, I want water this month, right? (laughs) Yeah, explain that way, absolutely. But what's surprising to me is something I read in your summary paper where you're reviewing both the urban and the rural side. I mean, I understand for the farmer, for sure, if he doesn't water his crop, the crop dies. He's lost everything he's invested in. So there's a sunk cost element But in cities, I mean, there's this three liters per day, which we have to drink, which we cannot negotiate. But aside from that, everything else can be delayed, can be reduced, can be managed. And out of all the studies you cite in your bibliography, which goes over almost 20 years of research, there's only a couple of studies which show an elasticity which is above one, meaning that all the others show that you have very low impact of consumption when you're playing with the price. How is that possible in cities as well? Well, yeah, when thinking about the sensitivity to price of urban residential water users, I think it's also important to keep in mind that a lot of the water that's being used isn't necessarily for those essential water needs, uh, like drinking and bathing, like irrigating lawns, for example, that outdoor water use is a huge portion of urban and residential water use that is much more elastic than that component that is essential that's actually relatively small within that. And then the other thing I want to mention is that I'm not sure that there's a universal elasticity for urban or agricultural use. I mean, it varies across space. Think about the crops that are being grown on the ag side is going to affect that elasticity and make it different in different places where you have a different mixture of crops being grown or a different climate that's interacting with this as well. And same on the urban side, there are different factors that changes over time. This, this sensitivity isn't something that's fixed in time. And so we might do our best as a researcher to try to estimate it because we really want to know that information for designing good policy. But it's an elusive parameter that's not the same everywhere. And so that in part explains some of the variation that we found when we've looked at all these past studies. Actually, that element that you mentioned of the change over time is pretty spectacular when you look at the various graphs you're showcasing for Coachella, because you have this wide array of data over 16 years, and there's three districts, and each of them has its own price, which is raising all the time. So the price is never decreasing. It went relatively constantly up over the 16 years. And if you look at the seasonal peaks of consumption and you still try to look at the trends, the trend goes down, which means water is always more expensive and there's always less use. 
Do you see that as just a sign that there's less water in California? Or do you see that as a long-term impact of the price evolution? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to say from looking at the raw data that you're talking about, right? I mean, when you look at that groundwater extraction data, it's, yeah, this squiggly mess, right? And you see some things like there's a clear seasonal pattern. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. You're irrigating in the summer and less in the winter and that sort of thing. But it's, it's hard to draw any conclusions when looking at that data that something is is causing whatever you're seeing. And to me, that's one of the fun things about the research that I'm doing is like, okay, we have this mess of data. How do we tease out what is being caused by this one signal of prices and, you know, trying to take tools from econometrics to try to isolate that one signal. And so, It is encouraging that when you look at the raw data, you know, you see prices are trending upward and you see extraction is trending downwards in the way you might anticipate given that signal. But just looking at the data, you can't really conclude that anything is caused by something else. Yeah. I guess it's my non-scientific mind because there's causality and causation and it's hard to say which one is which one. I get you. You mentioned the crops. You mentioned how various crops would lead to various uses of water. I was wondering there as well, who's the chicken, who's the egg? Do you decide on the type of crops you use so that you're a bit more flexible with water? Or is it the other way around? Because if you're not sure to get the water, well, you adapt your crops. Yeah, that's a great question that I'm not sure that, you know, the research I've done can really speak to that. I would imagine that expectations about future water availability definitely play into planting decisions on farmers. But I've also heard sort of anecdotally that there are other factors that are much bigger drivers of crop choice. And this is not something I've studied specifically, but for example, world market forces of what's driving crop prices and, you know, those sort of expectations on what crops will be profitable are bigger factors than maybe some of the uncertainty related to the water supply. On the crops, I had the discussion with Scott Hamilton about the Australian case. And he was saying that the big water traders were using almond trees because almond trees can afford not to be watered. So you get a higher elasticity to that extent. There was something special about your study which surprised me, honestly. I was reading your summary paper and it was showing that there is a much lower proportion of industrial water in the United States already than globally in terms of percentage of use and much wider urban uses of water as well compared to the words used there. In a nutshell, the ratios are pretty different compared to the usual 70-20-10 you see in the rest of the world. But with that specific example of Coachella in California, it sounds like there is no industry. So is it like negligible or is there really no industry at all? No, I mean, I don't know the statistics for California in particular, but there's definitely some industrial use in California. But I think that the urban residential and the agricultural use gets a lot more attention in the literature for two reasons. One, because they are the larger water users, they just get studied more, but also for data availability. I don't know of good data sources on industrial water use, and it makes it harder to conduct these types of micro-level economic studies. The reason why I'm asking is that it makes the case somehow simpler. You have too many users and you can play with one and with the other. So I just was wondering if this was a simplification or if it was actually a state of the local market. Yeah, no, I, I think it is a simplification, but one that's very, it's, it's pretty um, 
I don't know, well accepted because of its reflection of the real world. So now really for the muggles, for a market to be beneficial here, the key parameter, if I understand your body of work right, is you need to have heterogeneity. You need to have various elasticity, various demands, various users. And that way you can have this kind of triggers which activate some and don't activate some others. So it means you must avoid at any cost to have like a monoculture of one type of stuff at one specific place, because that would mean an elasticity of zero. Is that right? If everyone looked the same, that doesn't necessarily mean that elasticity is zero, but that the willingness to trade among them would be zero. Like if everybody looked exactly the same and was given sort of allocated the exact same amount of water to start with, you know, there'd be no incentive for anyone to trade and therefore no benefits from trading. But yeah, if we had big differences in demand across different users and it's combined with how much water those users have. So it's like a little bit tricky to explain, but if you, you know, if you have somebody who has very little water and needs it really badly and somebody else who has a ton of water and doesn't need it very much or doesn't value it very much, then that's like the ripe situation to have benefits from trading between these two. But you could imagine other combinations where that incentive goes away. The more homogeneous you are, the less benefits you would get from having a market. But so the ideal situation is kind of a scattered situation with a lot of different cases and not like, like single big players, aside from the aspect of rigging the market. It's really about having various needs and readiness to pay. And I think you define that as willingness to pay. Right, 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 right. So the demand curve, the price elasticity, the marginal willingness to pay, these are all like interrelated terms that are sort of describing similar things. But yeah, it's sort of, if I'm given a certain allocation, I have 10 acre feet of water and I my willingness to pay for that 11th acre foot of water, that additional unit, if that's really high and your, Antoine, your willingness to sell your last unit is really small, there's going to be benefits from us trading that unit. I would gain and you would gain. And so we need that to exist. How would a market actually look like? If I recall right here your research, you say that the basis would be to have an allocation and that this allocation shall be as close as possible to the real needs or the target needs so that you marginally trade. Is that right? Yeah, right. So part of the reason why economists like talking about markets as a solution to achieve a, an allocation that is best for everyone is because regulators who are trying to manage this resource don't have perfect information about how individuals value the resource. And not to mention that those valuations change over time. And we live in a very dynamic environment that even a really well-informed manager would have a hard time keeping up with the changing world we live in. But so in theory, you could imagine an allocation of water across the water users that was perfectly right for each individual person and that, that maximized the, the value of that water to society. But it's unlikely that the regulator would know that or be able to get to that, right? And so that's why the, the market mechanism, that's where the market mechanism comes in. We can give any allocation and if we could facilitate trade and every individual knows how badly they want the water or how much they'd be willing to sell it for, then we can arrive at that allocation. I'll put that comment in the fridge because it's something I noted as well in your research 
and I have an example to discuss with you, but I'll come back to that one. How would the market look like in practice? I would imagine that the farmers would be in that market for themselves, but how is it on the urban side of things? Is it the municipal utility which is trading in the name of the individual users? Or do I, if I don't want to water my lawn, decide to trade my urban water to my neighbor farmer? Right. Yeah. When we're thinking about ag to urban trade, it's much more likely that these trades would occur with the irrigation district or the water utility trading on behalf of the the individuals, right? It's, it's unlikely the situation that you described them. We don't have mechanisms in place where the, an individual farmer could sell their water so that I could turn on more water at the tap. But the irrigation districts and the water utilities serve as, as intermediaries. And we have seen trades like this happen in practice at this district level. Where did you see these examples? There have been some trades like in Southern California among some of the irrigation districts that receive water off the Colorado River. I can follow up with you on on some more information if you'd like about these sort of district level trades. For the case of Coachella here, for example, we would have these three different sub-areas of the basin, each of them being an irrigation lot somehow, and they would trade in the name of the ones connected to their facility with the local utility and water would flow to its best use. So that's the theory of it. So if you're just talking among the agricultural users in the Coachella Valley, you could set up a market so that individual farmers could trade with each other. And this is something that is in development in other areas in the state. As I mentioned, there's this groundwater legislation, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And so different agencies right now are trying to actually come up with ways to facilitate trading among ag users within a basin. And if you're just doing it within, among the the individual farmers, especially with groundwater, it makes it easier because essentially I could pay you not to pump and then I pump more in exchange, we exchange the money, we don't even have to move any water around if it's connected enough hydrologically. But yeah, when we start asking this question of like, how would this actually work? And we're talking about connecting urban users with ag users. That's when you really need this like intermediary irrigation district or water district to facilitate those transfers at the district level. Because, you know, with residential water use, it's not connected in the same way it's treated, it's priced differently, it's very different. I've noted in your various research and bibliography that you take the depth of the groundwater and the energy needed to pump up the groundwater as a proxy to know how much water is present in the groundwater and how accessible is it. Do you also leverage some kind of hydrological modeling to try to understand how big is the reservoir? How much can you play with it? How does it really flow? Because I guess those basins don't exist just because people wanted to have that shape. It must have underground or overground reality, which makes it a cohesive group of water courses or groundwater. Yeah, like you mentioned, I've so I've taken sort of output from hydrologic models and use that in my research. Things like estimates of the depths of the groundwater table or information about how connected how easily water flows laterally. And similarly to you, Wikipedia-ing the price elasticity, I have to go Wikipedia, what is like, you know, storativity, transmissivity, like all these hydrology terms. Um, 
And thankfully, I have several friends that are hydrologists that I can call up and be like, I'm looking for a parameter that does this. And I say it in plain English. And they're like, oh, yes, this is the transmissivity of the aquifer. I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and it's a really important part of this type of research is being able to, you know, incorporate the good groundwater hydrology and the understanding and development of these different instruments. But I've, I've just used sort of very surface level like metrics to try to, um, I, yeah, the hydrology is not modeled in a very sophisticated way in these uh, models that I've been working with to study trade. It's really parametrizing them with these economic parameters of like how sensitive we are to changes in price and things like that. I've spoiled the results of your research by saying that you have this number of 36% better use of water compared to the status quo with a market. But what does it exactly describe this 36%? How better is it? What shows you that it's better? I'm going to take us back to the example I tried to use earlier where, say, I'm growing almonds and I have very little water my sort of baseline allocation is super, super small. And so I need, I would pay a lot for water to keep my almonds alive. And say you happen to fallow your fields this year and you have an allocation of water that you would sell for not that much, you would be willing to sell it. So say you would sell it for $10 per acre foot and I'd be willing to buy it for something much higher than that. And say we settle in the middle you know, the difference there between what you'd be willing to sell it for and what I'd be willing to pay for it is this surplus that we're measuring. That's the benefit of if we trade, we both gain. If we land anywhere in the middle on the price we sell between the two of us, we'll both benefit the difference between what we'd be willing to buy and what we actually bought it at. And so that's what we're capturing in that benefits from trade or gains from trade. And I'm, I'm putting it in percentage term when we give those sort of headline results, because it's just a little bit easier to understand relative to, you know, we had a curtailment and you're not allowed to trade, you know, the benefits from the resource are going to increase by th the 36%. I'm staying with the percentage and you're showing that if you're letting the market play its game and water flow to its best use, the market would reach an equilibrium, which is 70% higher than the current price of agricultural water. But wouldn't that be a problem at some point if you raise the prices by 70% for the farmers? That price is like the, it, that's the, the equilibrium price in the market. And so it's important to keep in mind that the trades in the market are voluntary, right? And so if you assume that, you know, farmers are smart business people who are going to do what's in the best interest of their bottom line, they're going to make the trade because even though it costs money to buy that water, it's ultimately better for their profit margins to have that water than to not have the water, right? And so by allowing the market to exist, all you're doing is allowing for voluntary beneficial trades to occur. No one would participate if it wasn't in their best interest. And so even if you see the price going up, That's water being traded that otherwise wouldn't have been if the market didn't exist and we'd be in a situation where those people would be worse off. You mentioned at the very beginning that you're advising policies, that you're trying to have this applied research element. So you demonstrate how the water market would be beneficial to everybody 
and how based on the voluntary-based trading that you just described, there sounds to be very limited, if any, drawbacks. So what's the next step? Are you advising the authorities to actively enforce it and to put water trading in place? Part of why we did this research was because questions about the sustainability of groundwater are at the forefront of water issues in California. So there are basins that are trying to figure out how do we cut back on groundwater use? How do we bring our basin into sustainability? How do we do this in a way that minimizes the economic harm for those who depend on the resource? And so, you know, this is one instrument, one way we could do that, that could ease the transition into a situation where we're cutting back on the groundwater resource. It's not going to be for everyone and for every location. You know, there's definitely pushback to some of these concepts and, and that's totally fair. And this is just a study that it comes with limitations, right? As a researcher, you know, of course I don't have all the information and I have to make a large simplifying modeling assumptions, but hopefully this will, I, the goal is to provide information to those that are interested in developing a market to see potentially what's on the table. The groundwater policy you were referring to is that 2014 regulation. Yes. So it passed in 2014, but it's got a very long time horizon because the start of it was, okay, let's form groundwater agencies. <laughs> so that took a couple of years. And then it's, let's come up with a plan to how we're going to reach sustainability. And then 20 years for actually reaching sustainability. So even though it passed in 2014, it's very much ongoing right now. But from the list of specificities we've seen about Coachella, there is the fact that groundwater is priced, actually, which is already pretty different, if I get it right, from other places. And then on top of this being priced, it's priced differently by sub-regions within the Coachella Basin. And then there's this potentiality of the water market. But without jumping to the highest level of the ladder, maybe there are in-between steps, like you're showing how this pricing of groundwater is a good start, right? Yeah, absolutely. And economists tend to think of using either a price instrument or a, what we would call a quantity instrument like a market. And so even though I'm using Coachella as the empirical setting to study a market, it might not be the best thing for Coachella because they already have prices, if that makes sense. But I used Coachella as the empirical setting because they had these prices so we could actually try to sketch out the demand curve that we need if we wanted to study a question about markets. But in theory, you could get to the same outcome by either prices or a quantity market instrument. Like one follows the other. If, imagine setting a price, people respond to the price and you reach a, an amount of extraction as a result. Alternatively, you could set a cap, like we don't want any more than X amount of extraction on this basin. You allocate that among users and facilitate trade. It would reveal a market price that in theory should be equal to that optimal tax. Let me open the fridge and take the question I had put there. Actually, in your summary paper in the annual review of resource economics, you're showing how what you're investigating for California might be applied to other places in the world which have similar settings and you're citing Australia and Israel. And you just said some minutes ago that there's this central planning, this perfect ideal case doesn't really exist because allocations can never be absolutely perfect. And therefore, you need a market. And it looks like Australia follows that advice and they have a market trading. But let me use the other example, which is Israel. 
And you know that Israel has grown as a socialist country at the very roots of it. And we were discussing all of that with Ravid Levy here on that microphone. He was explaining how in Israel, the water belongs to Israel, not to any particular user. So the country owns all the water and gives every year new allocations to everyone. So you're saying that their ideal world, which is based on these yearly allocations, which are supposed to be perfect, isn't that perfect. And they would benefit from putting a water trading in place. Even if you have a central planner determining the allocation in every year, in order to get that allocation, quote unquote, right, from the perspective of maximizing the benefit, beneficial use of the resource to all of society, that's what I mean by getting the allocation right, the central planner needs to have so much information that we think is impossible to know how much individuals value every incremental unit of water. That's what you would need to know to set that allocation right, according to my definition of right. Sorry, I didn't want to trick you. <laughs> But it was interesting to me because it's actually the farthest extremes to answer the same question. Just to close that deep dive, I've seen that in the work you're currently doing, you're working on leak reduction as the most cost-effective urban water management tool. So how far are you with that research? We're going through the peer review process right now, and the, the publication should come out shortly, and I'll, I'll send it your way. It's an exciting paper that compares the cost effectiveness of various urban water management tools, and we find that, yeah, correcting leaks in, in the pipes of the distribution systems of water utilities is low-hanging fruit. It's interesting because it's an empiric thing that everybody would tell you, let's do it. But then in practice, you just see that nobody really does it or in a consistent way. So it would be interesting if you have a body of research on that. So I'm really looking forward to your paper. I'd be really interested the day you're done with that. Awesome. That was a fascinating deep dive. It's good to see it broken down for muggles like me that I finally even understood it. So thanks a lot for that one. If it's fine for you, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I try to keep the questions short and you can have short answers as well. And don't worry, I'll try not to sidetrack you too much, but I never can prevent it fully. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Okay, this one's hard to answer quickly, but I'll try. <laughs> I've been doing a study in the Pajaro Valley, a different basin in California, studying a similar question about how water prices affect agriculture, this time looking at land use changes and looking at how land use changes over time. And the reason that it's really exciting is because within this basin, we have a subset of water users that experienced a price change and the others didn't. And we observe that before and after the price change. And so it's what economists would call, quote unquote, a natural experiment, because we couldn't actually run an experiment where you give some set of farmers a higher price and look at how they behave differently from the others. But I sort of stumbled upon a very similar setting and combined with really cool geospatial data on land use, we can see how it drives changes in land use. So stay tuned. And did they behave differently? That's what we're seeing so far. Yeah. 
Okay, you can't give too much spoiler. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Um, so many things I've learned the hard way and are still learning the hard way. One of them I would say is interdisciplinary water work, which is super important to this kind of stuff. You can't think about groundwater economics without understanding anything about groundwater. But I can't say that I figured it out yet. <laughs> I just know it's hard. <laughs> as long as Wikipedia has all of our backs, we're good. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Oh, so hard to predict. I have no idea what I'll be doing in 10 years. Hopefully a lot of the same stuff. <laughs> yeah, maybe let's go to the next one. I don't have a good answer for that one. <laughs> what is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? So this is tangential to the water sector, but one thing that I'd be keeping my eye on is the increased planting of perennial crops. We've seen changes in the crop mix in California over time with increased you know, nuts and orchard crops. And I'm not saying that this is a good or bad thing, but it affects the way farmers respond to changes in the price of water and affects their resiliency in the face of climate change and, and water supply uncertainty. So it's something to keep an eye on. If you were a world's political leader and you could take a first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges, what would it be? So as a water resource economist, I think about issues related to water scarcity, right? And water scarcity is made much more complicated by climate change. Climate change is affecting our water supply and making it more variable, more unpredictable in many ways, changing it in ways we haven't fully wrapped our heads around. And so if I were a world political leader, one of my first actions would probably be to influence climate policy. On a totally different note, you know, you just destroyed my usual personal answer to that because I'm always saying, you know, we should put the price and the value of water at a level where people start considering it. But you've just destroyed my way of thinking the words because now I know that <laughs> it has no influence. <laughs> you, had me, you had me going deep with thinking bigger picture with this question. <laughs> and last question Would you have someone to recommend me to have on that microphone? Oh, man, there are so many water resource economists that I have a lot of respect for and I think would have a lot of interesting things to say. Brian Leonard, Andrew Ayers, Eric Edwards, Nick Haggerty, all early career water resource economists uh, like me that are tackling these issues, but from different angles that I think would have different interesting perspectives to share. Very interesting. Well, Ellen, it's been a pleasure. So thanks a lot. And I stand my case whenever you have your paper done on leak reduction. I'd be really, really happy to have you back on the microphone. I'd love that. Thank you. I'll share it with you. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.